podcast out of New York City. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, June 2nd, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today, you're here, Nurse Vicky's 2020 Health Tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we got another great show for you today that's going to include Can Telemedicine Give You the Health Care You Want and Deserve? And When Can a High Protein Diet Kill You? Wow, that's powerful stuff. And When Can Sunlight Help You Lose Weight? And How Does Chocolate Save Your Life? And Some Shocking Risks About Taking Just an Occasional Sleeping Pill. Hmm. So, what is the future of medicine? What is the future of medicine? Online doctoring? Well, telemedicine was big on the news recently, especially on Good Morning America. So we're going to talk about what it is and if and when it could be a good idea, particularly since doctor visits can end up being very expensive and time-consuming. I suppose it depends on what you mean by telemedicine. If you're talking about getting in touch with your own doctor by email or by Skype or by phone, Yes, that's terrific because now you have access to the person who knows you, who can spend time with you. That's perfect. That's a good way to do it. But how does it work when you're calling in and it's to a service that is not your doctor and they don't know you and you have to give a history and uh, you don't have the confidence uh, in that particular person? How does that work? Yeah, this is some of what they were talking about on the um, on the news. Mm-hmm was how unsatisfying that can be. Yeah, how personal can it be? And many times their diagnoses uh, are not correct because they can't see you and they don't know you and they can't examine you. Yeah, they don't have your lab work. And they're just listening to you. There was one example of somebody that had bumps or a rash or something Uh and they ended up, the patient wanted cream and all these different things. Well, by the time they got done with the patient, it turned out that, that the person had a lymphoma (laughs) and they were putting off treatment for it by doing these creams and things for the rash. Yeah. Well, do you really think that you can substitute uh, personalized care from a doctor that knows you uh, from care like this where you're trying to get a quick fix and maybe you don't want to quite spend the same amount of money? Maybe you don't have insurance and so you'd like to do something that's a telemedicine because it doesn't cost so much? Well, the other thing is too is like if you don't feel good, it's a big deal to get up and get dressed and drive to the doctor and sit mm. and wait and spread your germs and, right <laughs> right you know and have your uh, your visit and then come home and on the way home maybe you have to stop and get some lab work done or an x-ray done or pick up your prescriptions and all that and you don't feel good and you don't feel like doing it and if you could just do that online or on the phone that mm. would be so much more convenient the doctor could if you needed a prescription the doctor could call it in sure um, and they could maybe see you a little bit because they're seeing you on Skype, you yeah. know. Well, what happened to the house call? <laughs> you know, when Dr. Welby used to drive out in the horse and buggy and, and stop in and spend a little time to get you to, to know what's going on and well, see the situation. Well, you do that once in a while. <laughs> well, I, I, I do. You did that today did that for today three hours. for three hours, that's right. But that's pretty unusual for most doctors to do that kind of thing anymore. Well, how personal is it? I mean, how much do you care? Is medicine a service? Is it a business? Is it is it something that matters to you? I know it sure matters to patients what you do. And if you spend more time listening and caring rather than 
got one hand on the prescription pad and the other hand on the door, you know, so you're trying to get out of there because you've only got five or ten minutes to see this person. It's a whole lot different than the three hours I spent today without, by the way, sending, even sending a bill because I cared about this person. Well, you know, there's also what do we call concierge medicine, and mm-hmm. I think that those doctors do get paid quite a bit of money for Well, they get a flat that. fee. They only need to have a few patients a year, so it makes their, their uh, practice simpler. Uh, you're around 24-7. I suppose if you had a partner that was helping you, you could cut the call down a bit. But if you didn't have a lot of patients or didn't take patients who were very sick, you could look at it as a job that wasn't so time-consuming and you still make a decent living. But how much are you really providing in the way of service when you look at a doctor who, who's listening to you, caring about you, taking care of a number of patients, is around a good part of the time, is available for emails or for Skype calls or telephone calls? See, that's calls. the trouble. And, and now with affordable care, mm. the doctors have less time. Yeah, you're right. So this is pretty unusual for a doctor to be able to do that. So I can understand why some of these websites for telemedicine are becoming so popular. Well, yeah. I mean, people can't afford a lot of the health care that's available today. Look at how much money it costs to have health care that's decent health care. And even Obamacare, you know, we're looking at the Affordable Care Act, the deductibles and co-pays are so high for people that qualify for that that these people can't afford to pay for, for them, let alone uh, the visits uh, that that would have if they didn't have insurance. We know some of this reminds me of advice nurses mm. because I know some health care plans have advice nurses and mm-hmm. the patients can call in and talk to the nurse. However, the nurse can't order a prescription or any well, of that. Well, now the PAs can, the physician assistants can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I mean, that that's coming down to more of, of having these kinds of people give routine uh, care. Like, for example, if you have a cold or a sore throat or a urinary tract infection, something that's not really complicated. This could be something that would be a very good, convenient service. It would save time and money and a lot of inconvenience. So one of the problems is if you have a condition that has similar symptoms to something else. Well, yeah. I mean, like we had the example of the person who had the rash that turned out it was lymphoma. You're certainly going to miss most of those. but And you wouldn't know the difference. So if somebody called in, they had this rash. I mean, maybe the next thing you know is you have a steroid cream to try and suppress it. And what you've done is waste valuable time because this was actually a lymphoma that maybe over the next month or two could become something that's out of hand, and then the treatment would be much more difficult. Yeah, so it turns out that a lot of it is more about treating the symptoms than getting at the cause of... Oh, but but you're right, and medicine in general is about that. I mean, how much time does a doctor usually have to look at why somebody has the simple thing like a cold? I mean, the fact that somebody's got a cold is important. You care about that. But it's not some huge life-threatening thing. And so the tendency is to say, well, take a couple of aspirins, go get a cough medicine, and you know, maybe some zinc lozenges or odds and ends. But, but the real important thing isn't the fact that you've treated the symptoms. Why did this person get a cold? What's going on in their lifestyle? Are they somebody who is not getting enough sleep so the immune system is suppressed? Do they have a lot of stress in their life? Have you listened to what those stressful things are? Uh, is there some other kind of problem that's going on that's causing an immune deficiency? That takes time and caring. So listening and caring cannot be replaced. And the impersonal kind of medicine that we, we use, both in telemedicine from sources that are different from our own private doctor, but also from 
a lot of the private doctors, especially those that work for a big organization, some HMO, they become employees, and they're punching the clock just like uh, other employees from other businesses. They have to turn businesses. them out in a certain amount of time. Yeah, so you <laughs> don't really have the time to to do the work that you would like, uh, like Dr. Welby coming to your house, you know, for a house visit, and then really listening to what's going on and talking about why somebody's upset or why uh, some kid seems to have a problem sleeping or why he's acting out or is there bullying going on. There's not time to do stuff like that. It's it's become mechanized and impersonal a, a lot of the time. Well, speaking of that, there was one site that was called JustAnswer.com. Yeah. And it was for cars and for people. Cars? Yeah, so you could call in about your why your car was sick. You're kidding. <laughs> And why you were sick. Well, I hope they wouldn't get them mixed it up. It was all the same. <laughs> but it was all the same site. What are these, doctors who are mechanics or what? Mechanics that well, are doctors? Well, I guess it was separate. It was just that they <laughs> just had both of them on that site. So oh, my gosh. It just shows how impersonal things can get. Well, when I get sick, I like it when I have some personal attention. And I well, like sometimes you like to just be left alone when you're sick, though. Well, that's different than what we're talking about, though. I mean, oh, well, you said you wanted to have some personal attention. Well, I do. I thought you meant like some TLC from me. Well, of course I want some <laughs> TLC from you, no matter what. But when I'm really sick, I like to hibernate. Yeah. yeah. But when I need to find out what's wrong and I don't know, then I'm inclined to still ask some of my doctor friends what they think. Well, that's why it might not be a bad idea to do this just for an opinion, just for a consultation. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's some pluses to it for sure. What I get worried about is that what's happening to the practice of medicine? I mean, we've lost that personal touch. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. Well, one of the things we get confused about in medicine is is what a healer should do and what somebody who is more mechanical and treating symptoms should do. Well, think about like all the alternatives out there, you know, like from Chinese medicine and from Ayurveda and so forth that have been around for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And some people are still practicing it and it's helping people and it's working. Mm -hmm. And yet we criticize it because we have what? We have more technology or something. And yet some of our technology isn't so great, but I guess some of it is. Well, sure. Some of it saves lives and some of it really helps people feel better. And that's important. But what are we looking for when we go to a doctor? Are we looking for somebody who will just fix the cold or fix the heart attack or fix the hypertension or the whatever it is that we have? Or do we want somebody who's going to take it a level deeper and look at the reason why we're sick and try and, and determine that? And that's not so much of an academic thing as it is something that is getting a feel and having an interest in caring about people and trying to understand uh, them in the context of the illness that they have, but also in the context of who they are, their whole life story, and how that fits in with their family, community, nation, and universe. Well, there's not often enough time to get into all that with your doctor. Well, that's a practical answer that's right, but it's not an answer that answers the question, what's the best thing to do? I mean, it's not like the village. It's not like the Native American community where the village was what made decisions. They got together. They looked at what would be the best concerning the whole story of what was happening. Where's that? Where's well, the medicine well, of the shamans? What, but that's, that's what you do at the Health Medicine Center when you have a healing circle. But Well, that's true. At the same time, though, we don't want to just look at what's practical from the point of view of cost. Medicine doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, 
it can be something where, where doctors don't charge a lot of money. It, it's not for the money that people should go into medicine, in my opinion. And I certainly didn't go into medicine for the money. I went into it because I really wanted <laughs> to understand and help people. And the way you do that is by being present and listening and trying to understand what the story is. I mean, we need to know why our health is the way it is. Our body is a reflector of what happens at a much higher level of, our, of the essence of who we are. And that is transmitted down through the body, and it manifests itself in dis-ease that comes from that higher level. So why did you get the heart attack? Or why do you have hypertension? Why did you get that ulcer? Why did you get the other things that, are, uh, that you're complaining about? You want to just go fix those and go on as though they never happened and figured it was bad luck? Think again, because it's not just bad luck. After 50 years of practicing medicine, I know that. But try to tell that to, to younger doctors or tell that to the professors, okay, of the medical centers that are teaching them that this is not just a science we're talking about. This is about who you are as a person and what's gone wrong uh, at, at the highest level. And how does that translate into the physical symptoms that you have? And what can you do about helping that person not make the second mistake again? If you've had one heart attack, do you want to wait till you have another and then fix that? What about your lifestyle? The diet, exercise, stress, sleep, weight, exposure to environmental toxins, and, the, of course, the joy of life. What about those factors? We kind of ignore them. Not kind of. We do, for the most part, ignore those things, or we give lip service to them as physicians. Or, you say, look at, or people look at other people and they think, well, they get by with it. Do they? But then do they? But then there's that wellness buffer there. But do they? They don't get by with it. Because they, they haven't resolved well, anything except... Well, they do for a while. <laughs> well, they get away from the symptoms, but they don't yeah. get by with solving the problem. So that takes a whole different kind of attitude and concern that is more holistic. See, holistic doesn't mean complementary and alternative. It means everything. Body, means, mind, emotion, spirit. Yes. Every perspective of, you, of what a human, who a human being is is important to anybody who cares about a person. And if you're a doctor and you've got access to all those different perspectives, you've done a good job. If you've eliminated any, any one of those, you've eliminated a, an important aspect of who that person is. And you may be able to help them with symptoms, but you haven't really solved the problem. And it's not just psychological. Okay, well, what if somebody comes in and, and they have a problem with their elbow? Okay, say they fell and then they so hit their elbow. So what's the spirit got to do with their elbow? Well, why did they fall? I mean, what, what were the circumstances? Maybe they got tripped or maybe somebody hit them or they were playing So why were in that situation a sport? To, and a, why were in that arthritis. situation to start with? What was happening at that time? Maybe it was bad luck. But, you know, my, my thinking about how the universe works and the spirituality of it is that everything makes sense and has a purpose and has a lesson to be learned from it, even a sore finger or a cold. I think those were important things. Well, I know Louise things. Hay talks about all that in some of her books. Well, that's a good thing that she is. I mean, it's an important thing. And as we've learned more about genetics and epigenetics, we're learning that it's not the DNA so much that determines or predetermines what's going to happen it's to you. It's our lifestyle. Yeah, that may happen 5 or 10% of the time that DNA is really important. 
But how DNA is manifested by environmental situations, which includes body, mind, emotion, and spirit, that's very important 90 to 95% of the time. So why don't we focus more on that? Because if we will, then we'll understand more about what's going on and we can be more of value in bringing that person, what I call, back to wholeness. The return to wholeness is the journey of healing that makes us well and healthy. That's the story that's Because we're all connected. Well, we are all connected, all the aspects of who we are. We're not just a body. We're not just a mind. We're not just an emotion. We're not not just a spirit. They're not pieces. We're everything all together. Try and take a body or a mind or an emotion or a spirit out of a person. Good luck. It can't be done. So when we look at that as parts, we've missed the boat. We need to look at the at the whole person and all the perspectives and, and find out who they are. And again, in the context of their whole life story. When we do that, we're doing much more than giving some pill to knock out some symptom. And not to say that that isn't compassionate. And in my own practice, in my own research, I'm interested in that. That's why I do the infrared light work and why we're doing oxygen utilization in people to find out what's actually gone wrong at the mitochondrial level. I'm interested in that. But that's only one perspective of what's going on in this person. And the deepest perspective is the one that gets ignored, which is why did it happen? It's not because you had a bad mitochondria to start with that your oxygen utilization is screwed up. It's because something that has to do with who you are as a person that puts you in that situation and how that fits into the spirituality of of how the universe works. Why did you get what you got? What was the reason? Yeah, because I think, too, sometimes psychologically people need to have something wrong with them. Absolutely. That's what a lot of this is about. Yeah, for example, even like say you're stiff somewhere, and if you don't do some kind of stretches and things, it might get locked and it might not ever get better. So sometimes there are things that we can do. Sometimes there aren't, but sometimes there are things we can do. When you say people need something at a conscious level... Not very no, often. at an unconscious level. At an unconscious level, that happens all the time. And then our job becomes a lot more difficult because there's no awareness. But when somebody has an ulcer, they need to have that ulcer for the psycho-spiritual reasons of what's happening. And it may be the stress of their life that they do recognize that, that is part of that. Well, maybe it's just a wake-up call. Well, it's, Not that they need it. Well, but... it's supposed to be a wake-up call. That's right. That's what illness is. Illness is a wake-up call. Physical disease is the somatic or physical expression of psycho-spiritual dis-ease. That's a mouthful. If you believe that, and most doctors don't, but there's a growing number of doctors who do, we're beginning to appreciate the depth of what's going on uh, in a human being. And to then take action that makes more sense, that's more direct at looking at what the cause is and deal with that rather than just sweeping those symptoms under the rug and letting them sit there without doing any kind of action that makes a big difference. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on some of the worst foods you can put in your body. And when we come back, we'll be talking about when can a high-protein diet kill you? Some of the worst foods that you could possibly eat are sodas, for example, mm. because it's not 
only the primary culprit in the obesity epidemic. It's also linked to cancer and memory loss, nerve disorders, premature aging. And then there's things like hot dogs and hams and sausages that are processed meats, and those are harmful. And if you regularly eat these foods, they'll eventually lead to an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. Plus, they have a lot of calories. And then there's the high-calorie pastries. Hmm. Now, obviously, those have lots of calories and fat, and so they expand your waistline. And they also lead you to a closer risk of heart disease. Then there's canned fruit. Sounds good. Fruit, right? Not. First of all, take peaches. Let's just say there's peaches in the can. Well, basically, they're in a can of peach-flavored liquid sugar. <laughs> That's right, like high-fructose high corn. High corn syrup. Yeah. And they're in a BPA can, so uh-huh. we don't want to eat that. Then there's artificial sweeteners. Now, those aren't just in the sodas. Those are in a lot of foods. And although that they're zero calorie, they're linked to health issues like metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Right. Actually, they're formaldehyde cocktails, <laughs> they and they be. can increase your risk of cancer. Yeah. They're neurotoxins. They, can, they contain uh, methanol as a breakdown product, and they can lead to weight gain, which is what you're trying to avoid by using them in the first place. <laughs> then there's farmed salmon. Now, farm salmon can be loaded with carcinogenic chemicals, flame retardants, antibiotics, pesticides. These are little cancer fillets. Right. They're a little bit of fish in it too. Yeah. (laughs) And they're full of additives and all kinds of nasty things. Microwavable popcorn. You know, these are filled with um, chemical flavoring agents that pose health risks. Um, they can also increase respiratory risks linked to Alzheimer's disease, certain cancers, and the chemicals that line the popcorn bag is also, you know, that's another another factor. The best way to do popcorn, I mean, popcorn can be healthy. Just air pop is it. Huh? Air pop it or cook it on the stove in mm-hmm. a big pan sure. with a little, a little coconut oil or olive oil or something. Sure. But mechanically popped organic is really the best. You don't want the GMO, and if it's not organic, it's going to be genetically right. engineered. It's pretty low calorie by itself, and it's got a lot of fiber. And see, too, the ones you put in the microwave, besides the fact that the microwave changes the molecular composition of the of the popcorn, there's some of them have plastic liners and nasty things that are in there, fake butter that... <laughs> can cause problems. Where can you get real food these days? And the bags are coated with the PFCs um, that are linked to cancer and reproductive system damage and linked to thyroid disease and ADHD. And so that's enough on that. So then when we get to swordfish, now grilled swordfish fish might taste good, but it's also high in mercury and it can be harmful to brain development, especially in young kids. And it's the same thing with albacore, tuna, king mackerel, marlin, and shark. Right, especially for if women that are pregnant, they should avoid that. I recommend women don't have any fish yeah, during their pregnancy. So hydrogenated oils, this isn't a new topic. We've talked about this many times before, but a lot of processed foods still have hydrogenated oils on them and in them. And just because they say zero on the label, you still need to look at the ingredients because even though I don't know how that works, but they can put zero on there and still have them in there. Um, 
the trans fats change the structure of the cell membranes in the body. And so if you eat them all the time, that can lead to cancer too. You know, everybody's like, let's kill cancer. Let's get rid of cancer. Let's get at the cause. Well, we need to look at our diet yeah, for sure. and our lifestyle. Now, condiments, think about this one. Condiments that require no refrigeration. Like, you know, the ones that you get at the fast food place that you open up the packet of sauces and dips and creamers and, you know, ketchup and mustard mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. Because they remain stable at room temperature, what do you think? Why? <laughs> and also, they're they're loaded with food colorings, sweeteners, chemicals, salts, and all these preservatives to keep them fresh. And that can lead to premature heart disease. Fried foods, when you fry foods at high temperatures, they form toxic chemical compounds. And those can lead to a high risk of breast, well, all kinds of cancers. And then the genetically engineered foods, we need to stay away from those, especially the soybeans and the corn, because those are the most often genetically modified. Even chickens are. Dirty fruits. What are dirty fruits? Those are apples, strawberries, grapes, because they've been grown with dirty pesticides. Yeah, a lot of them. (laughs) So unless they're organic and they're not treated with pesticides, they can increase your risk of cancer again refined white flours bagels for example they lead Mm. to increased blood sugar levels and feed cancer cells cancer cells love sugar risk for diabetes too that's right and And obesity and junk food you know things like chips and gum and candy and all kinds of things high fat sugar salt and calorie content they're linked to obesity diabetes depression nutritional deficiencies the things that we like to entertain ourselves with right Regular potato chips, but you can't just eat one. They're full of preservatives, (laughs) trans fats, sodium, artificial flavors, and then the high temperatures cause, guess what, (laughs) cancer-causing substances like acrylamide. And then there's canned tomatoes. What are those packed in? Bisphenol A, BPA, found in the lining of the canned food. So if you want to have... You know, get some stewed tomatoes. Maybe if you can find them in a jar would be a good idea. But this BPA is linked to intestinal damage, heart disease, all kinds of bad things. Frozen dinners, we already know that. And donuts, those are some of the worst foods. And some of the low-fat foods because they substitute them. You know, they'll substitute the sugar for the fat. So cut back on all this bad stuff and add in tons of good and tasty things and enjoy the ride a lot longer. Yeah, so things that look like food, eat them. <laughs> they don't look like food. Well, some of those things look like food. They're just not. Yeah, that's We've right. We've made them. Okay. Okay, so the guidelines for a healthy diet change according to our age, and a recent study shows that meat and dairy may be as bad for us as smoking. Concluding that a high-protein diet during middle age increases your death rate and a moderate-protein diet after 65 is good for you. However, we need to pay attention to the detail that studies often don't include or they ignore. So what are the proteins that the studies include? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it, it's a strange thing. And this was published in, in the journal Cell Metabolism in March of 2014. It came out of US, USC uh, School of Medicine. And what they basically showed is that a high-protein diet during middle age makes you about twice as likely to die, for that's from all-cause mortality, and four times more likely to die of cancer. But a moderate protein intake after age 65 is actually healthy for you. So what's going on there? Well, I think as we get older, we need the protein to build our, our muscles again. Exactly. But if we're young and we eat protein, which is basically high in iron, that's not such a good idea. Well, the protein, whether it's because of the blood in it, is a little high in iron, and you're right. 
it's sort of an aside to this article because too much iron as we age is not a good thing. But as we eat more protein, what happens is we increase the production of something called IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor 1. And so whenever we eat a lot of protein, that happens. And when that happens in middle age, it raises the risk for developing cancer. But we're talking about animal protein here, right? Animal protein only, that's right. We're not talking about plant protein. That's a, that's a very good point. We're talking about meat and dairy. Meat and dairy make up about 80% of our pesticide load at the same time. Now, they didn't talk about that. And most, of the, uh, most people are not eating organic food. So you're looking at a lot of pesticide and a lot of dairy that has pesticide in it as well. So the antibiotics, hormones, and pesticide levels are high. What does that have to do with this? It would be an interesting thing that should be looked at. Well, I think also the way the animals are treated and killed could influence the quality of the meat as well. Well, that's something they don't look at, and most people think, well, how could that be? But I agree with you, Vicki. I think that's a, a very important thing to do, not just from the point of view of our health, but from the point of view of the ethics of, of, of raising animals and how they're treated, I think, is a very important so thing. So what are the healthy proteins that we get from plants? Oh, any kind of protein. You look beans and legumes, okay, nuts. Uh, they are all having protein between about the 10 and 13% range. Meat really only has about 25% protein, so you're looking at half the amount of protein that you have in meat by using a vegetarian diet, so you're not going to have a problem with a low-protein diet. Uh, although when you're older, eating more protein, even from animal sources, turns out to be a good thing, and I think there's a, there's a mixed bag here. Because when we're younger uh, and you eat a lot of protein and it raises IGF-1, that may lead to more cancer. That's what they're implying. But when we're older, it may lead to a bit more cancer, but IGF-1 levels drop as we age anyway. So that may not take it above a certain level that causes cancer. It may be a lot of other factors, but making more muscle is something that's an important factor. All right, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. And when we come back, we're talking about more Prescriptions for Health radio uh, that it's going to include, when can sunlight help you lose weight? Try that one on. Everybody's looking for an easy way to do it. <laughs> hmm, I wonder what it is. Surprising new strategy for managing your weight. Bring in the sun. <laughs> How does that work? Well, a new Northwestern study reports that the timing, intensity, and duration of your light exposure during the day is linked to your weight, meaning bright light in the morning and the earlier the better. Yeah, so that's kind of fascinating. You wouldn't really think that. Now, is this a way we can kind of cheat, still eat what we want, and, and go out in the morning sun and off go the calories? Well, kind of looks that way. But, you know, maybe two. Well, of course, they did do this study independent of all those other factors. They looked at other risk know. factors for this. Sure. For sure they did. They found that the timing, the intensity, as you said, and the duration of light as long as in the morning made a big difference because bright light in the morning significantly lowers the body mass index, which is what you weigh. 
But they said this was independent of exercise, caloric intake, amount of sleep, age, or season. Right. Because it would be easy to say, oh, well, if you're out in the sun in the morning, you're not going to eat as much as you would mm-hmm. if you were in the afternoon no, or no. maybe if you're they jogging just, in the sun. They measured the amount of food people ate and they didn't eat a different amount of food. So it wasn't yeah, an so issue. it wasn't that. The same thing with sleep because we know sleep has a lot to do with weight too. So now we've got light and sleep. Sleep, of course, is something if you don't get enough of, what happens is that there's an inflammatory state in your body that affects leptin and insulin resistance. Leptin's a hormone that makes us feel like we're full. And if there's not enough of leptin around, then we still have an appetite. And then what's with the ghrelin? Ghrelin's another uh, hormone that's from the stomach that has to do with your appetite. So leptin is the one that has to do with with, uh, making you feel full. Okay, so anyway, this one was independent of all those risk factors. Mm -hmm. However, I can't help but wonder if this would have something to do with melatonin. Well, that's a really good question. Because we've talked about melatonin before, and that's the hormone that regulates our circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that can alter our metabolism that can affect our weight? Well, I do. I think that certainly could have an effect on it. Now, this study didn't show that. And by the way, it was published in the Public Library of Science in April of 2014. And so if you don't get enough light at the right time of the day, that like in the morning, the bright light, that's going to have an effect on appetite and a lot of other things. Well, you know what's interesting? We've always talked about how to get the most vitamin D, and mm-hmm. that's in the morning between 10 and, and 2. 2. Well, that's early afternoon also. Mm-hmm. But this study talks about getting enough sun to, Just in the morning to influence your, your weight is 20 to 30 minutes between 8 and 12, and that's enough to affect your body mass index. Right. So what we have here is something that's, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And uh, because you wouldn't think that light has a lot to do with how much you're going to eat or what your appetite is or what your basal metabolic rate is. And they didn't measure the differences and all that, but they did have an association that was clear. So it's a good idea to get you know light what? in the morning. And it doesn't mean get up and just walk to work, you know, in, with your clothes not getting enough light in. Uh, like it would be important with vitamin D. What do you mean with your clothes? <laughs> well, I mean, most You're people are... You're not going to walk to work naked. <laughs> no, but if you want to make vitamin D, for example, you've got to have skin. And yeah. by the way, the light that comes in through windows doesn't work because it blocks out the vitamin, the, the, the UVB rays. But in this case, all you have to do is see the light and be in the light. And that's and what melatonin, diff- that's what it is with melatonin. Well, that's true. That is what it's like. So how much light do you need? Well, the normal amount of light we get indoors is about two to 300 lux. But the magic number of how many lux, which is a measurement of how much light we get, to be able to lower the basal metabolic index is about 500 lux. Well, how would you ever measure that? Is that a certain well, you amount of watts or voltage? Or? Well, no, it's, it's, like, it's like watts, but it's different. It's the amount of candle power that you have. For example, on a cloudy day outside, there's about a thousand lux there. So that would be equivalent to a thousand candles? <laughs> no, no, don't, don't worry about the technical part of this. That doesn't matter. What you need to know is about how much light you need. So if 500 lux is what you need and the average inside is two to 300 lux, then outside is a thousand. If it's cloudy, you kind of have an idea of how much light you need. So this is something that's fascinating that maybe is going to be incorporated into some weight reduction programs. Well, you know, previous research has shown that light plays a role in regulating our metabolism and our hunger and our appetite. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, So it's not totally new, except for this one shows about the metabolism. Yeah, well... Well, the other one showed about the metabolism too, though, so... Well, I think what we have here is, is a new concept because nobody ever thought, does it matter when you get light in terms of what your body will do in terms of burning calories? And well, sounds like a good idea to do, if you could work it out to do this, would be to go to bed as soon as it gets dark because we know that light in the evening can affect how well you can sleep, well, you if know. It, if, it, if, you, if it turns off your melatonin, you won't sleep well. So if you get a lot of light before you go to bedtime, particularly if it's white light or blue light, that's going to suppress melatonin, and you probably are not going to have as restful a night. So you don't want to be on your computer or watching TV just before you go to bed, or you won't sleep as well. But we do that anyway because that's what we do. You know, we're in this fast track, busy world, and it doesn't. It's not like uh, it becomes a big priority. But if you're going to be exposed to light, like in the middle of the night, make sure you have a yellow or an orange light. Because it does a lot less to so, suppress melatonin. So pretty much what you have to do is go get those light bulbs at Christmas time and save them up for the save year. The because ones. otherwise it's really hard to find those colored light bulbs. Well, that's right. But anyway, so what I was going to say is that I think it sounds like a good idea if if you, if you a person could do it to go to bed as soon as it gets dark with the shades open mm-hmm. and then wake up with a bright early morning sun just yeah. like our ancestors And then did. get out in it. Okay, that's I mean that's the real deal is you have to be in the light to be able to have it have it work. Another reason to exercise in the sun. Oh, or for sure. Or to take your walk or whatever outside. Sure. Rather than on your treadmill or put your treadmill outside. <laughs> well, it just <laughs> in shows the sun. You, it just really reminds me of how important it is that we follow mother nature. You know, with our fast track world and all the conveniences we have and now the you know, we've had electric lights for a long time. It changes what we can do in terms of our ability to see what we're doing as opposed to following what Mother Nature did, which means when it gets dark and you can't see, you might as well go to bed because you're tired anyway and then get up, okay, in the morning when the sun comes up because that was what, what well, wakes like you up. Well, just like the flowers do at night. They close up and then they open up in the morning. Well, flowers aren't as silly as we are, right? <laughs> they don't have all these modern conveniences that do these kinds of things that cause problems for us. So... Here we are learning something that's kind of a surprise. I think that once this literature gets out, it's going to be interesting to see what people do with it, how, how programs are developed uh, that have to do with lifestyle and getting up in the morning and exercising and being out in the sun as opposed to getting up, taking your car to work, not getting in the sunlight much, and then working inside where there's not enough light. Well, it just reemphasizes to the importance of, of a healthy lifestyle. So say you want to lose some weight. Mm-hmm. So if you exercise, if you're in the sun in the morning. That's an added bonus. If you eat a diet that's not high in calories, you know, if you eat a healthy diet. And lots of fresh You get and enough vegetables. sleep because we know sleep affects our weight also. Huge. So it's interesting that all these things can affect our weight. Well, so and also even stress. Some people, when they're stressed, they eat more. Oh, for sure. Uh, often they're up at night, too, so they're not getting enough sleep. So that really includes pretty much everything. Well, it's interesting that lifestyle is the most powerful medicine in the universe. You know, we're talking about that all the time in our closing statement on the show. So if you respect the, the power of Mother Nature and, and follow the rules that it sets for you, chances are you're going to be a lot healthier than if you just go ahead and do what seems to can be convenient, what everybody else is doing, and, and lose the benefit of lifestyle. 
and look good too. Exactly. Well, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on how can eating a salad make you tired? Now, there's a good one. What the <laughs> heck is that all about? And when we come back, we're we'll talking about how does chocolate save your life? There's a good one. You know, you think the chocolate's bad for you. And lastly, the shocking risks of taking an occasional sleeping pill. If you eat your vegetables and your salad without any fat, your energy will last for less than an hour, and you'll find yourself craving sugar to help regain your focus and concentration. Because fat helps the body absorb those amazing nutrients from your vegetables and your lettuce and all the things you put in your salad. So here are some healthy ideas to ensure that you're getting fat along with your fiber-filled vegetables. For example, you can add a hard-boiled egg, some beans, or a little lean chicken or tuna to your salad, and the extra protein and fat will double the amount of energy that you'll get from your meal. And the small amount of fat will help you absorb more nutrients from your veggies. You might want to also try dipping your vegetables in something like hummus. Of course, Lately, hummus has gotten a bad rap because they were recalled for listeria or something, but generally that doesn't happen. And you can also buy hummus in the bins in the health food store and make your own. Just add some olive oil and lemon and whatever to it. But anyway, it's made with tahini, which is a sesame butter, and it's a great source of a healthy fat. And hummus is also rich in protein, both from the chickpeas and the tahini. Another idea is to add an avocado to your salad because avocados are a healthy fat. And they're monounsaturated fats. Yeah, just like olive oil. And they have an amazing source of fiber and potassium, and they help reduce the bad cholesterol, lowering your risk of stroke and heart disease. Now, when all else fails, you can grab that full-fat salad dressing. But you know what I do is I do have, when I'm in a hurry, I will take a salad dressing that I really like, um, Paul Newman's. Uh-huh. But it's not organic. But the ingredients in it are pretty healthy, except for I don't like the idea of eating canola oil that's not organic because oh, it's right. probably genetically engineered. So what I do is I just don't shake it up and I pour all the fat off the top of it. You probably don't even know I do that. But I pour all <laughs> the fat off the top of it. And then I either eat it just like that or I add some olive oil and maybe a little bit of flaxseed oil. That's a good way to go. But the thing you have to do when when you do use a bottled salad dressing is watch out for the sugar content because a lot of the processed salad dressings can have a lot of sugar, which will spike your blood sugar levels and eventually cause your energy to surge and then crash, which is what you're trying to avoid right now in the first place. And the other thing is you could just make your own with vinegar and, and some olive oil and, and uh, little lemon you should herbs. only have about a tablespoon, but you can add lemon to stretch it and make it go a little bit further. Hmm, sounds good. So those are my tips. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Now, the mystery of why dark chocolate has health benefits has finally been revealed, and the mechanism will surprise you. Now, certain bacteria in the stomach gobble the chocolate and ferment it into anti-inflammatory compounds that are good for the heart, and they actually lessen the inflammation of cardiovascular tissue, reducing the risk of stroke. Another good reason for friendly bacteria. Right. That's something that is not well accepted yet in the mainstream of medicine, but there's so much research going on in this. The uh, National Institutes of Health is looking at what's called the microbiome, which means the bacterial, the microbial makeup 
of the of what's in the intestinal tract, the stool. Our poop. Our poop, yeah. <laughs> and poop is an organ. It's got so much metabolic activity in it, and it's got thousands of different species of microbes that are actually 10 times as many microbes as our cells in our body and more metabolic activity than any organ system in our body. So when we eat food, those microbes that are there have a lot to do with how that food is handled. And in the case of chocolate, if the right microbes are there, they can ferment that chocolate into something where the uh, anti-inflammatory uh, chemicals that are in it are, in, are able to be broken down and absorbed a lot easier. And, of course, that, re that reduces the risk of stroke and heart attack and, and other kinds of problems like that. So does this mean that instead of an aspirin a day or fish oil to eat a square of dark chocolate to prevent a heart attack or a stroke? Not either or. I think both are good. And it's as long as you can limit it and not eat too much chocolate. That's probably that's the, the problem with that's chocolate. That's the hard is. thing is to just have one square. <laughs> well, that's right. Oh, maybe another one. Yeah. But more isn't always better. No. But chocolate does contain um, antioxidant polyphenols. Mm -hmm. And then plus the fiber, that's a really good combination. It's a little bit of fiber. But the problem is, is without those microbes, those polyphenolic compounds that are powerful antioxidants that have things like cotection and epicotection uh, are not well digested uh, in the stomach. And unless they get down into the colon and the right microbes are there, that's the acidophilus and bifidobacter. Uh, if they're there, they can break it down into smaller uh, molecules that can be metabolized and easily absorbed, then giving us the extra anti-inflammatory activity. And then this article was talking about combining them uh, the chocolate with prebiotics makes it even more powerful. So a and prebiotic pre is what? That's the fiber, okay, the undigestible fiber that the microbes that do the converting of the polyphenols into the active compounds, it actually makes them work better. Well, some examples that they made in this article were raw garlic. Well, that would be one. Yeah. And cooked whole wheat or to take a supplement. Well, there are a whole lot of foods that have fiber in it. How Any about chocolate-covered garlic? Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> There's a combination, like maybe pickled garlic. But most of our fiber comes from where? It comes from vegetables and some from fruit, and it's different kinds of fiber in the two. Well, they really were talking about pomegranates and acai, how, how, how those had such good health benefits. And if you could combine chocolate with that, I've never <laughs> seen chocolate-covered pomegranate, but I think I might have seen chocolate-covered acai. Well, I know I saw chocolate-covered goji berries. Yeah, well, you almost have to because they have this kind of aftertaste that to me is, makes it hard to eat them. But it really is pretty amazing when you think about it, all the things that our gut does, you know? I mean, it digests food, it absorbs nutrients, it keeps the toxins out, it helps us with our immunity. It does a lot of things. It prevents the so-called leaky gut uh, syndrome. Uh, we know that if we eat the right foods and we stay close to nature, so we're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, the gut microbes are going to take care of themselves, and they work in a symbiotic relationship with us so that they do certain things, and in return, uh, we feed them. So if we feed them the right kinds of foods, they can flourish and, and, and multiply, and then they can do things like break down the problems that we see with, uh, and my with mind chocolate. is going all over the place thinking about good things to eat. Like you could have chocolate yogurt. <laughs> You're not into chocolate, are you, Vicky? <laughs> Just maybe yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and that's what this article's about. <laughs> yeah, and we're talking about dark chocolate here. We're yeah, not dark chocolate. Much about milk of course, chocolate. it wouldn't be so dark if you added yogurt to it. 
Well, that's okay. It's not the color that matters. It's what's in the dark chocolate you start with. So that's okay. Well, doesn't milk chocolate start with dark chocolate and they just add milk to it? Yes. Well, they add milk and sugar and butter, cocoa. And dark chocolate usually isn't as sweet, but you can get different degrees of it, however much percentage. Yeah, well, for me, I like the milk chocolate, but I don't think it's near as healthy as the dark chocolate. Well, I like the dark chocolate. Well, and I, and it, it helps just like me. like Jack Spratt and his wife, huh? Yeah, but the dark chocolate helps me to satisfy my chocolate craving better because it's so much more concentrated. Okay, well, here's a catch-22. People that are unfortunate enough to have heart failure usually have insomnia and they turn to sleeping pills. And new research from Japan now suggests that sleeping pills dramatically increase the risk of cardiovascular events in heart failure patients. And the main culprits are the benzodiazepine hypnotics like Valium and Restorol and Ambien and Lunesta and Sonata and Benadryl and so forth. Yeah, well, there's no question that we're talking about something here that's uh, a big deal because we look at sleeping pills like, what's the problem? Uh, they, they just put us to sleep and maybe we don't get the best sleep, but at least we get some sleep. But when you look at the risks that are increased here, it's it's uh, surprising that it's as much as it is. When we talk about cardiovascular events, you know, it's it's increasing the that eight, eightfold. And things that are cardiovascular events are things like heart attacks, strokes, peripheral vascular disease, atrial fibrillation, angina, things like that. You look at an eightfold increase? Yeah. Eight times as much yeah. from taking sleeping pills? Yeah. That's like stunning. Yeah. And you wouldn't think a sleeping pill would have anything like that kind of effect on us, but it does. So the study that came out that was presented uh, at the Heart Failure Association of the European Society of Cardiology in May of this year reviewed that. And they had 111 heart failure patients that were admitted uh, to the medical center in Tokyo uh, and followed them for two years. And the endpoints that they had were readmission for heart failure or a cardiovascular-related death. And and what they found here was really kind of shocking information that I think we have to carry with us because we take too many things for granted when it comes to a pill. We think that a pill is going to be something that just saves us from uh, some kind of inconvenient thing. But well, there's too, always well, a consequence. people get frustrated when they can't go to sleep. Right. Well, the benzodiazepines may also have cardiodepressant actions mm-hmm. and respiratory depressant actions. Right. And so actually they can, and they can also exacerbate sleep disorder breathing. Yeah, well, if you have sleep apnea and now you're in a deeper coma, right, basically, during or deeper sleep, you may not be able to uh, get the same effect of, of sleep because you don't have REM sleep and maybe it's going to suppress some of the symptoms that you'd have, like if you had congestive heart failure where you're starting to cough uh, or if you suppressed your respiration so you weren't breathing as much. And a lot of people who maybe have some respiratory disease as well as cardiovascular disease don't bring in as much oxygen. And if there's a little bit of water in your lungs because you're in congestive heart failure, you take in less yet. And when you drop the amount of oxygen that, that goes around into the circulation, you're looking at a lot less. Well, here's another example of... You know, what we've talked about before, uh, finding other ways to be able to get enough sleep. And on our website, drsaputo.com, we have 
a lot on insomnia and what you can do to help yourself. And just earlier we were talking about melatonin, you know, and not having bright lights on at night and that sort of a thing. Well, if you go to the website, okay, which is free, by the way, there's no charge for any information on this. It's totally a public service. You're right. And go to the top of the toolbar. There's a section that says assessments. And if you click on assessments, there are 33 different health conditions that we can uh, give you assessments, a little test to take that takes about three minutes to do. We ask you yes or no on multiple uh, choice questions that are maybe eight or ten questions long. What will come back instantly are audios and videos because we have 2,500 audios and videos that Vicki and I have made that we can draw from that will tell you various uh, answers to the questions that are posed by the way you filled out that assessment. And when that happens, you get a good idea of what you need to know to understand what's happening and what you can do about it from both mainstream and complementary and alternative medicine. And on some, in insomnia, we have a lot of tips oh, that, are, that are natural, healthy tips of things that you can do. Exactly. You know, there was a previous study, too, that showed that mm-hmm. in, uh, in taking these sleeping pills increases early death threefold, and it also increases the risk of cancer. Right. So... You need to really think hard about, well, maybe you don't need to think hard. Just don't do it. Just don't take these benzodiazepines. Well, this previous article was in the British Medical Journal in February 2012, and the drugs that they looked at were things like Restoril, Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata, uh, some antihistamines like uh, Benadryl, like Vicky was saying. These are all things that... uh, uh, are not proven as a cause, but they're pretty worrisome because if indeed these statistics are correct, we have no reason to think they're not, this could cause as many as three hundred to 500,000 deaths okay, uh, every year in the U.S. from doing that. So what you need to be aware of, too, is that if you're in the hospital because of your heart failure or anything else, it's pretty much routine that you're given a, a sleeping pill. On discharge, yeah. Or well, while you're in the hospital, right. too. Well, that's you know, right. So always ask you know, what they're giving you or what pill they want to give you. Okay. And just because you're in the hospital or you're going home from the hospital doesn't mean well, you have look to at, stay okay. Look at these numbers. If you use up to 18 pills a year, that means a little more. That's one and a half pills a month. That's all. One and a half sleeping pills a month. The associated death risk was increased 360%. That's a stunning number. If you took between 18 and 132, which means somewhere from one every month or one and a half a month to about 10 a month, that'd be one every three days or so, the risk was 4.4 times greater. And if you took 132 pills, okay, a year or more, the risk was 530% increased. So we're looking at numbers in here that are shocking. We can't afford to do that. We're at the end of the show, so I want to remind you that we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news uh, in health the first and third Mondays of every uh, uh, month on prn.fm and drsaputa.com. Prescriptions for health will also be available 24-7 on uh, prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Music.